My guest today describes himself as a dad, an F1 nut, a music lover, and a former DJ. Now here's how his clients and his colleagues describe him. He's an excellent entrepreneur, mentor, and leader. Here's another one. Antoine is a true professional and incredibly passionate about the roles he offers his clients. Antoine has excellent stakeholder client management abilities and always goes above and beyond what's asked of him. Here's another one. His insight, dedication and integrity are second to none. He is a rare kind of visionary who can do it all. He can define a long-term strategy and then break it down to the day-to-day. -day. Antoine Marston, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Paul. Yeah, some nice, uh, nice testimonials there from clients and customers and colleagues. You're obviously doing something right. Yeah, oh, I'd like to think so. <laughs> it's nice to hear. Yeah, uh, for those of you who don't, of people uh, who who don't know you well, uh, Antoine, maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what kind of an experience that was. Yeah, so um, so born in Whitechapel, East London, raised in Barking, further East London. Um, or Essex, depending on which side of the <laughs> of the border you're on. Um, and so, so Barking, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I guess it's, um, I'd say it's a, a bit of a commuter town, um, but it's uh, it used to be a former fishing village, um, so it has got lots of history. Um, and uh, my my mother moved there when, so my mother came from Jamaica in, I think it was the 60s, uh, Windrush generation, and then she went and set up shop in Barking after living in Hackney for a bit. And so, um, yeah, for, for me, I, I've lived in Barking pretty much all my life. Um, so very much an East London boy. Um, really? and, uh, yeah, I think um, it was, you know, it was very open, lots of parks, lots of green space. Um, you had the kind of calm of being outside of London, but then you had the madness of London right on your doorstep if you ever wanted to, to, to go and have something crazy, you know. So I was able to experience kind of both the, the very kind of relaxed kind of Essex lifestyle, but also then the very frenetic, fast-paced London lifestyle as well. And you describe yourself as an F1 nut and music lover, former DJ. Yeah. Can is it true that you can only that you can be a former DJ? That is it not within you always? No, yeah, it is always in you. I mean, I've got um, you know, I've got you know my 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 Technics decks, which I've had for forever. Uh, but then I've also got um, you know lots of the uh, the new school equipment. So uh, I've um, I definitely keep a hand in it, but I'm not performing so much anymore. Um, maybe just a friend's birthday here and there um so but but music is very very close to my heart and uh, my dad is is a dj and still djs um as part of uh, the, the number of things that he has an interest in so it's, it's kind of in the blood in that sense mm. so mm. That, that's that's there and then it's because of my dad that i'm into f1 as well okay. so that was kind of like the the one of the the few things that we had together um which is which kind of you know that's remained intact so very 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 um big big f1 fans um and and yeah it's just been a i guess it's just been pretty interesting as a, as a whole kind of you know mm -hmm. the whole story that i've had and and what my parents have kind of exposed me to um and uh it's i, I guess it's, everything is a blessing i see everything is a blessing okay i want to come back to that in a moment uh, i'm just curious have you been to any of the major f1 races 
So, been to Silverstone, seen Silverstone quite a few times. This year, I'm mm. attempting to go out to Abu Dhabi um, with my son. So, my son's four. So, it's about the same age that my dad kind of got me into Formula One. So, I'm attempting to take him out there this year and kind of get him uh, kind of fully revved up. <laughs> in that yeah. Sense. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a couple more destinations that are on the bucket list for sure. Yeah, I got to uh, the final. It was in Abu Dhabi in 2019, just before right. the pandemic. Yeah, and uh, I'd never been, a, and I'll be straight. Like F one wasn't something that I knew much about. I'd seen it, but it was a friend of mine said, "Why don't we go out?" And there was a few of us went out to Abu Dhabi, and he got some fantastic uh, seats, literally right at the start line where you're looking across at the, the. I'm sure there's a name for them, the people who change the wheels and. I knew there was a word. I, I, I feel embarrassed now. Of course, it's the pit. It's, it's a, and it's a pit stop in the pit lane. Um, <laughs> But it was amazing to watch it, actually, as somebody who came in with no sense or, you know, no sense of wonderment or, or desire to see it. Uh, it. It was a fantastic experience. So if you can get to see it and, and they did it again, I have nothing to compare it with. But the one in Abu Dhabi was amazing the way they did yeah. it and the, had the whole day and the build up to it. It was it was it was special. So it was so definitely, yeah, def yeah. definitely worth it. Definitely yeah. worth it. Curious to know how much you said your, I know you said your mother, you didn't say your father came in as Windrush uh, immigrants. How much of being the son of immigrants has that factored into you being an entrepreneur? Um, it's a good question. Um, so I would say, yeah, that my, so I, I feel like the entrepreneurial side has very much come from my, my dad. So my mum was, um, you know, she she kind of entered the corporate world fairly young. She'd done all of mm -hmm. this stuff and kind of like doing the typewriting courses and all that kind of stuff. So she got herself into a major financial institution from fairly young, worked her way up. And then she um, she was the EA for one of the top bosses there for a good number of years. And she's always been kind of the steady, very safe, play it cautious put your money aside, write down everything that you're spending, don't go too crazy kind of woman, right? So she's been was very, very solid in that respect. Whereas my dad was uh, far more of like a whiz with kind of numbers and he was very much, uh, he, he kind of made his way into accountancy. Um, but then he, he built his own business um, after leaving, I don't know if you remember Allied Dunbar, um, but he was, yes. uh, he was, a, he was a, one of the, you know, an accountant uh, Ally Dunbar could have yeah. had a partnership, decided that he wanted to go off on his own. And he, he started up a business and was working out of the family home. So I used to see him daily just grinding to, to develop his own business. And I even took that into school with me. I ended up kind of going into school and setting up a tuck shop out of my locker and, you know, um, kind of generating some money that way. And then from there, it would move into mobile phones. I was sending mobile phones at school because I mean, I'm from Barking, but I was going out to a school further out in Essex, which was pretty prestigious. Um, and I wasn't, I wouldn't say that we were quite up there on the kind of financial or wealthy or wealth ladder. So I looked at opportunities where I could explore, where I could, you know, provide a service and make some money from it and managed even at 14, 15, I think it was to find myself a partnership with a guy who was selling mobiles at his shop in Barking. And then I was kind of buying them and then reselling them at, at the school. So um, I've always, I think, you know, my dad had a massive impact on me on um, really understanding what it meant to 
to go out and make something and create something for yourself and believing in yourself enough to go and to go and actually achieve it. That's amazing. It and you often see that in entrepreneurs that there's there's a clue that you rarely see entrepreneurs who had a very safe, very uh, sheltered upbringing mm -hmm. where everything was done and then, and then they became entrepreneurs. There's always the, the hustle there yeah. as a kid, whether mm -hmm. that's knocking on doors, selling stuff or jumble sales, car boot sales, you name it. There's always, there's always something. And that yeah. I, I guess, I think I would imagine once that's in your blood, then it's very hard to go into any kind of a corporate life. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I knew that, you know, I, I'd always had that drive to work and earn my own money. That was very, very apparent from early on. You know, I was getting, what, maybe £2 lunch money from my mum every day, but I'm returning home with 70, 80, 100 pounds and she can't work out how that's happening. Um, but I was always very focused on okay, I'm getting this much, it's not enough, I want to get more, how do I get more? And then yeah. just creating ideas to go and make that happen. And I, I think that even through like my late teens where I was doing lots of different jobs, so I've been a skip lorry driver, I've worked on a railway, I've worked at McDonald's, Blockbusters, anything that I can get into understanding, okay, how does this work? What do I need to do in order to get my mind out of it? And that would always kind of foster and generate new ideas of, oh, I could possibly do this and possibly do that. And I think it just... Yeah, it gets to a point where I went into a corporate setting knowing that I needed to learn more and expand my development mm. and my thinking, but it was mm. always going to be a kind of stepping stone to what I was going to end up creating for myself one day. I have this image in my mind. You mentioned that your mother was a, a very detailed, secure, would, would write everything down, have her lists. Mm -hmm. And... She giving you the two pound lunch money, you coming home with, 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 with a few wads, going, put that on your list, mom, put that one down. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, it was funny to see. She was always just bewildered. She was just, and she stopped yeah. asking questions. Um, but yeah. I, you know, as I said to her, look, I'm, I'm, I'm selling mobile phones. I'm selling this. I'm doing vinyl trades. And she just thought, mm. okay, I'm just going to let you get on with what you're getting on with. But I was like, but I still get the two quid though, right? <laughs> I was yeah. Every day. Um, but but yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting education and uh, yeah. a really good time in my life, I think. Yeah. And talk to me about how you got from there to what you're doing currently. Oh wow. Okay. So yeah, I mean, my first foray into to corporate sales was 2007, 2006, 2007. Um, and uh, my career actually started working for a events organizers, so B2B events. Um, and in B2B events, you've got two different sides. You've got the team that invite the delegates to the event, and then you've got another team that work with the sponsors. So obviously pretty green. Um, I'd had maybe two, what, what, no, six months worth of selling experience before this, working for some boiler room company out of uh, Essex somewhere. Um, found myself obviously in a very, uh, in more of a prestigious company that was well known in the event space, um, very well known for development and training of, of staff. Um, and so I started my professional career there selling delegate positions to VPs of HR, VPs of marketing, um, and uh, really understanding that process, not just in terms of 
how to speak to senior level people, but also the psychology behind why people buy the types of things that you you would, I guess, say to start a conversation, how you would get into pain points and how you would start to understand what drivers people have in order to attend something like an event that we were selling. And um, I quickly, I very quickly saw, so we used to have a tickle board up mm. on the far end of the sales floor. Whenever, whenever anybody did a deal, their name would go up on the tickle board. And what I would see is that the majority of the names that would go up on the ticker board were the people that were selling the vendor deals. So naturally, I kind of had my, my start in selling on delegate positions and having those conversations with people that were looking at solutions and looking to, to sit down with people that could offer them help in that area. And my eyes was always drawn to £15,000 deal, £20,000 deal, £25,000 deal, whilst I'm doing £250 deals. So naturally, the, 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 the curiosity was, I want to do what they're doing. So um, I wasn't given that opportunity straight away. In fact, I had to leave and then go back to get that opportunity. It was recession, 2008, 2009. Um, yeah. Events kind of, people weren't going to events. So I went to Ibiza, randomly did stays for six months in Ibiza, came back, and then they gave me an opportunity to sell vendors. And then that was where that real kind of, relationship or, or kind of education started in understanding you know what people need when they're trying to sell their solution or their software to a prospect audience and how the facilitation of one-to-one -one business meetings helped them to hit their quota and the mm. types of things that they needed to get out of that conversation for it to be worthwhile of their of, of their time so there was a big learning curve for me in understanding those languages buyer meets seller seller meets buyer what needs to happen for that to provide a, a fruitful and um, long-term relationship and really that is what now i even do today with my business which is connecting buyers and sellers um you know sellers finding it difficult to find buyers uh, in this day and age right now mm. uh, with, with COVID and virtual selling all becoming a big part uh, of, of the outreach. Um, but also to be able to um, really develop relationships and conversations with people to not just drive business meetings, but to drive understanding about where they or what they see um, in the marketplace, how it impacts them, and what types of things are really going to make a difference for them to want to have a conversation with a vendor. Are you doing what you're doing currently because people don't know how to do it or they don't like doing it? Both. So I've noticed, so what I, what I, so there's a couple of things. I mean, you know, I, I've been in a number of different sales organizations, some great, some not so great. But then I also noticed that there was always a pretty familiar pattern of this is your ICP or this is the job titles you need to target. Go and find those job titles on LinkedIn or wherever you're going to find them and then go and find the details and call them. And that results in a lot of wastage. So I always thought I'm spending a lot of my time on wasted effort as opposed to effort that's going to produce good results. So I started to dial in more into what was delivering the good results and then I would want to amplify that. Um, but that is when you're in an organization that has a set way of working, quite difficult to then implement and kind of expand that. And that just became more and more obvious, the, the, you know, the, the roles that I had from after that first role. So 
it got to a, it got to a point, um, you know, kind of mid pandemic, I was running a, a recruitment agency, my own recruitment agency up until that point that fell off a cliff due to COVID kind of wiping out my, um, <laughs> my client audience, which was mostly event companies. Um, and then from there, I thought, okay, what is pretty obvious is that this pandemic is going to cause a huge disruption in the way that people are currently, you know, reaching out or, 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 or performing their outreach. And I feel that I've got the skill set to be able to help companies bridge that gap and be able to do this in a much better, much cleaner, more efficient and effective way. And that's where we started Salesroom. If it's not too uh, oversimplistic a question, what's, what has changed, um, apart from the obvious, more people are working from home, but in, in, in terms of reaching people, getting their attention, etc. Where do you see the where the patterns have changed? Um, I mean, people's attention is split far more now across a number of different channels. So you've got LinkedIn as your major busy channel, but you've got socials of Twitter and you've got TikTok and you've got these other mediums where people are now finding their information and where they where they prefer to reside. You've got people still going to events and all that kind of stuff, which is where they're getting that upfront, you know, kind of explicit detail from people. Um, during the pandemic, lots of things dropped off. The way that people worked in general changed because now no one's in the office. So the office numbers and the direct dials aren't connecting. So we need to get to people on their mobiles. But if you don't know how to get a mobile number, mm. then you're stuck. Who are you, what are you doing? You're calling, you know, switchboards all day long, which is not going to generate you pipeline. Um, great, we've got B2B platforms now that provide those mobile numbers, but then you've got people that don't know how to speak to somebody when, they, when they're calling them on a personal device. So I felt that there was a lot that I could offer in terms of being able to manifest conversations, to be able to get into the detail of ICP, be able to structure a way of reaching that ICP across a number of different channels, and then being able to educate our audiences to, you know, viable ways to reach out, the best ways to follow up and the best ways to conduct a prospecting call um, via these new channels, Zoom, you know, kind of whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. One, ones that people hadn't overutilized because they didn't have to, mm -hmm. to be able to, to really utilize that in the best way possible and still maintain, um, you know, some level of, of, I guess, kind of generation of cash rather than kind mm -hmm. of, sitting there and just thinking how do i go about doing this i have no clue but by the day we're not having as many conversations as we need and therefore we're, we're missing quotes a month a month a month i felt that we were able to to help prevent that and, and that's why i feel so strongly about where we're in the market and are, are you providing that service where your people are making the calls and providing the outreach or are you showing people how to do it so it's a mixture of both again. So it's a good question. So we, we, we have a consultancy arm where we, we really look into the detail of what the problem is. Um, you come, you often speak with a lot of people that tell you that they know what the problem is and they just fix it. But then when you delve into the questioning and you delve into the, the real impact and, and where the challenges are, you often find it's not where they think it is, it's somewhere completely different. And so we're able to, with the partners that we have and through our own service internally, we're able to give real, real good guidance as to where that company or where that person needs to be looking 
in order to really build themselves the right type of engine to be able to efficiently go out to their prospect audience. Um, so yeah, I think that's where we sit with that. Yeah, where do you find that people typically think the problem is and where do you find that the problem typically is, actually is, when you look at this challenge? So we get a few responses where people will say, um, we are, we don't, we're just not having, okay, so we're just not having enough conversations with people. Okay, mm. where, where is that stemming from? Where, where are the, you know, what, what does your lead base look like? Where are you collecting those leads from? Um, you know, well, we, we've, we've got a list and, and we've been working with that list and we've been calling people and, and people aren't picking up and, you know, we're just not getting the level of conversations out there. Okay, great. What, what other ways are your team reaching out to people? Right about now it's on the phone and on LinkedIn. Okay. So what we get when we kind of go deeper into this is that when people are actually mostly relying on emails, mm. phone calls have dropped off significantly, especially over the course of the pandemic. So we can't get in front of people on the phone. Let's get in front of them on email. So emails and the sending of emails, that trajectory has gone up massively. But the rate of the return on the emails now is, is, is really diminishing because mm. more and more people just aren't responding to those types of messages in their inbox. So when it comes to phone outreach, it's a difficult game. Only 3% of people you know, are really likely to be interested in any one time in the market in your solution. And you're trying to call people on the phone to try and get them interested. So we understood that actually when you're developing your leads, they're not actually developing those leads in the right way. There's very little work that is going on at, at that top of funnel to produce the quality of leads necessary to then go out to market and have the right types of conversations. So our focus has been to educate on how important it is to get the lead positioning right at the very top of funnel. When you are building your list, how are you building that list, right? Again, a lot of people will take a list, download it. They'll find out that actually out of a thousand numbers, oh, sorry, out of a thousand contacts, there's a hundred numbers. So now they've got this whole outreach kind of planned, but they've only got a hundred people to hit and they don't know what mm. to do with the other 900 uh, contacts. Mm. So it's, it's, I, I've, I found that I, I feel like if, when, when people sit down with us and we explain, okay, if we break down the ICP, we do a full sign, uh, uh, you know, we undergo a full kind of diagnostic as to not just the job title, but account segmentation, industry segmentation, personification within that profile, what types of things resonate with each of those job titles within this company, this size company, this size company, this size company. And then from there, building out the messaging based on the persona which is coming directly from the customer that you already have because you want to win more customers like this. And so there was a lot that I found where people didn't understand how important the messaging was. They didn't understand how important it was to really delve into the development of the ICP. And then from there, the structured outreach of understanding who responds to you on what channel and then making it specific to that channel that your message actually goes out on. So there's, there's a, I don't know if I've answered your question maybe as, as, as you've intended, as, as you've asked it, but that's kind of what we've seen and that's what we've now developed with a lot of customers to be able to perform much, much better.
Okay. Now you've described the process quite well. I just was curious to know if there were typical patterns where people think it's this kind of a problem, but actually when you when you delve down, it's it's somewhere else. And because because what you said about the emails kind of jives with what I was experiencing myself with people with companies I work with, is that there's in fact, before this is interesting, before the pandemic, I had a question I would ask to sales directors I was speaking to, and they typically come and they'd say, look, we want to do something with you, we want to help these salespeople, blah, blah, blah. And the um, question I asked was, when you put your head out of your office onto the sales floor, do you hear people speaking to prospects or do you hear the clacking of keyboards? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the answer was always the same, deep frustration, clickety-clack. Yeah. That was, so I just wondering how much that the pandemic was the, was the excuse that people who didn't want to pick, pick up the phone had mm. by saying, look, nobody's answering, everybody's at home, we don't have their home numbers, what can we do? Yeah. And, I, I, and has that been solved? I think it exacerbated the excuse. I think that True. you've seen probably a potential drop-off in the amount of people that are calling into the market because cold calling is seen as intrusive it's seen a, a lot of bad cold callers and it's seen as as, as scam artists and, and, and so forth but when we have had people saying yeah look quite simply we just we have a problem in um it, with, with the leads it's, it's, it's poor leads we're getting poor leads we're getting bad leads mm. but you actually listen to the process you listen to the guys on the on the phone you see um how they're actually interacting with people and you're like you don't have it's not a lead the leads are not the problem it's the way that your people are actually conducting the calls it's the way that your people are bringing people into your environment it's the way that you are setting up your lists for maximum effectiveness when people are getting on those calls that's the problem that you've got and we can help you mm. to fix that portion um or we can go to market on your behalf and show you what good messaging looks like and how that brings in your audience in a much better way um, and it's been very uh, interesting to see when we've run a number of these campaigns how even just that that small part fixing that small part can add such a huge amount of value to the organizations that we work with and it's that kind of aha moment which is you need to maintain that by the effective coaching of your people that are on those campaigns mm, so we, we are very focused on kind of, so we have conversation intelligence as one of, as part of our, our tech stack to really get into the conversations that our team are having on a daily basis to be able to tweak the areas where they're not so strong and to be able to continually make those, that, that outreach better. And a lot do of you see, there. sorry, do you, I was gonna ask you, do you see a difference in clients who have conversational intelligence software as part of their own tech stack do you see a difference in those companies versus those who don't have that or more traditional yes yes and and what is it that you notice for those that use it and apply it they are very intentional about the coaching of their team and about improving the performance of their team through direct one through direct management of their actual calling so they, they know what's happening in those calls. They are aware of it. They understand where the salespeople are dropping off, what they can do in order to make it better. Whereas I find it very difficult for anybody to be able to say to me that 
yeah, we, we, we have a sales team, but they're experienced. We don't need to know what they're saying because they just do the job. And it's like, but it's your responsibility to make sure that they are doing the job in the way that you believe is going to be the best way for the company to go to market. If you've got a bunch of mavericks working for you, that's all well and good. I'm sure they'll get results, but you don't have any control over that process. And so therefore with the, the, the companies that we work with that do have the coaching, uh, the, the conversational intelligence, they are very on the money with how their team are becoming more and more effective at being able to speak with prospects and, and really kind of sh close that gap, close that gap for conversion. That really is a terrible cop, cop out when you hear that we, we hire experienced people so we don't need to. It'd be like, you know, your, your F1 situation where you, you get a driver on your team and you don't do any of the analytics and you don't look at what it means and follow up and have dialogues with them in terms of what needs to change and how they need to improve. Like it would be just laughable in yeah. a situation like that, yet we do it. And it's, I, I came across a company recently and uh, they, were, they wanted to improve their experience at trade shows. And they had a very large sales team, a few hundred people uh, in the UK. And they, they, all, they all had their own territory. Mm -hmm. And they decided that they were, they were a reseller of products, and we'll just leave it at that. But they wanted to, on the stand, give each salesperson two products to be responsible on the stand. And they would do a relay. And their thinking was that if a prospect came to the stand, that the salesperson would do the same job with that prospect when that prospect was not in their territory as they would do it as if they were part of their territory. Mm -hmm. and, and just didn't get, I ended up saying, look, unless you fix this, there's nothing we can do here. Because yeah. it, was, it wasn't only just the fact there was no incentive and no attachment to it, but also not realizing that people in a sales team are competitive and they're not going to go out of their way to push somebody else up at their up at the up the leaderboard. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was so naive, and, and I just wondered, like, naivety has to be part of the problem as well in terms yeah. of when you're trying to go in and consult and, and fix an issue like that. Yeah, yeah, I think because you know a lot of a lot of the people that we speak, you know, we're speaking with founders and we're speaking with you know kind of VPs of sales. Uh, I think especially when you're working with people that don't have a sales background um they're, they're potentially you know they've built a business through great ideas that they've had maybe engineering backgrounds whatever the case may be this isn't a generalization but a lot of those types of conversations we've had with with that type of person mm. has always been we need to educate you on the development of those leads and then how you manage those leads through your pipeline um because there's this tendency to say all right, well, I see the numbers and this is the problem in the numbers without actually understanding boots on the ground, what, 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 you know, what's kind of holding them back for being able to perform to the numbers that they see. Yeah, that's always interesting to me as well is that you have engineers who are used to applying a problem-solving mentality in a technical world, but when you're doing a, a people thing, like we put a pipeline and it's not working, we put in some tools, well, okay, let's, let's figure out why. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Tell me, move just away a little bit from work. Tell me, in what, as an individual, what motivates you most? Oh, it's a good one. Um, so what motivates me most? I think it, for me, it's, you know, the, I, I, 
I went through uh, some, some pretty big challenges a couple of years ago, which helped me to refocus what I wanted from my life. And so I've got this vision board um, where I've got all of the remaining places in the world that I want to go to and the house that I want to build um, and the lifestyle that I want to create for myself. Um, and I know that for me to get there, that's going to come from helping other people to achieve their objectives and, and their goals. And so um, my motivation is the more people that I can help that understand that I'm in a position where um, my skill set and what we're doing as a business is able to help them achieve their outcomes, then that driver for me to build my own house and have that sense of, I don't know, um, yeah, just that sense of achievement in that I set something in my mind and I made that happen. Like that for me is an, always an ultimate push every single day, even if I'm feeling crap, that there is a goal that I'm working towards for me and for my son that is really paramount to everything else that I, I, I've got in my life. And what are you most proud of? I would say oh, most proud of. I'd like to say I'm most proud of, of, of building this company, but I'm actually most proud of the dad that I am to my boy. Um, he's four years old now, and I think that, you know, it's, it's in terms of purpose and realignment of what I want for my life, that's all come about because of him coming into the world. And the, the, the father I am today, um, before having kids, I didn't really, I wasn't fussed about having children, you know, I was just like, mm. don't need to have kids for me to, to feel like I, I've got fulfillment or purpose in my life. But actually, mm. it's completely, it's, it's shown me that actually, that, 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 I, that I have purpose now because of him. Um, mm. And that kind of reset my, you know, kind of where I want to go in my life and how I want to get there and how fast I want to do it. Talk to me about the moment that light bulb came on in your head. Um, I mean, look, the realization always dawns on you when they actually arrive, right? It's like, wow, like things are taking on a much bigger significance now. Mm. But I think that the, the moment came in January 2019, where um, by mutual consent, I left my last employee position and then had to really think very quickly about what I was going to do to put money on the table and to put, you know, to, to, to make sure that I was still contributing to that. Um, and yeah, that kind of spot. So that drive to do something came from then. It was like, okay, great. I need to do this now. I need to make it happen. There's no more excuses. And then within two weeks, I'd got the business idea together, written up the business plan and was busy in, in actually getting my, uh, my recruitment agency set up. So um, if it wasn't for that and for knowing that, look, you know, this little boy, I can't let down. I have to let him know that his dad always does everything to make stuff happen because that's the kind of, I guess, attitude that was instilled in me. Then I, I, I think that it always, it, it, it bodes well for when he grows up and he sees that, look, no matter what, where, where, you know, I don't need to be a millionaire for, to be seen as successful. It's what has, you know, the, the things that he went and did and, and, and what he, the things he went and sacrificed to, to, to make that happen is the, is the type of thing that 
I want to be able to utilize in my life should uh, you know should that time come around I want him to be able to see that hard work pays off go after your dreams and go after your passions and don't let anybody tell you that you can't do it mm. it's an interesting one I always find as a father is that you want to give your kids everything but sometimes that can be the worst thing you could do for them I don't mean giving them everything, but make, yeah, giving them everything rather than having to work hard for it. You often see that with people who are self-made millionaires who work really, really hard. And then their kids, they're robbed of the experience of being proud of what they've achieved. Yeah. Being proud of what they've accomplished. And it's not coming from a bad place. It's wanting to, but you're actually... You're, you're doing them a disservice, and I'm wondering how much that preys on your mind as you think about building out on this vision board you have with mo motivation coming from, from, from the heart to do the best for your, your son. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I remember in my first ever sales job, when and this was in the kind of the boiler room firm right so but i didn't know anything about sales then mm. properly and um they used to have these team meetings every day and so one of the team meetings i was asked to kind of share the reason why i felt working for the company was going to give me what i wanted or whatever the case may be and mm. i kind of went into it more from a standpoint of i am working towards being successful and I understand that up until this point, there's been a hell of a lot of failures, right? So I went to, to university, um, couldn't stand it. So, so ended up leaving university after a few years um, and then ended up pursuing work. And I saw that as a pretty big failure. I'd let my parents down, I'd let all these people down because I, I didn't want to continue with the studies. Um, and so it was this big driving force in that no matter what happens, I'm going to do what it takes to be successful. Mm. Where, however that comes about and so for me with with my son again it's, it's not so much about working so hard and doing everything so that he never has to worry or, or, or he can have the things that I never had because I think I pretty much had everything um, but what I want to show him is that there is no substitute for that if you want to create something you go and create it for yourself you don't get handed anything if you want to improve yourself Yes, you can have people to support you around you, but you need to go out, you need to, 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 to find those learnings and develop that for yourself. And that is, the, for me, I feel one of the best gifts that I can give him, which is you see your daddy working, you see me um, you know, doing everything that I can to, to, to make life good for us, but none of this is at the behest of, of hard work. Like you have to, you have to be able to put yourself in that situation and, and go for what you want. And, and, and I hopefully if I can show him that and he soaks that up, then he'll carry that through his life. And I think that there's, that's no bad thing to have. What's your wish for his future? Without sounding too cliche, my wish for his future is that he my wish for his future that he's, he's, he, he, he works towards happiness mm -hmm. and, and, and that happiness is in finding what he loves and what he enjoys. Um, I, 
I think that for me, as long as he is a, a kind person, a good person, and he <clears throat> he cares about others, as well as making sure that he puts himself in the best possible position that he can to achieve what he wants, then I can't ask for anything more. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about, yeah, it, it just got out of my head. What, 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 while I'm waiting for it to, to pop back in again, as they usually do, tell me, if you were Minister for Education, hmm. what subject would you make mandatory in, on the secondary school curriculum? Finance. Why did you pick that one? Because I think <clears throat> there's a huge lack of understanding around finance when we're in school and how financial education would prepare us much better for when we leave school. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of <clears throat> grow up as a child and the money that you see is always given to you. So you don't really know the value of money. You're always given that money by your parents, unless you do go out and work for it for yourself. You get into school and, you know, again, the, what they prepare you with for your life and that you end up not using is a huge amount. Whereas financial uh, education, if you can start that at school and develop that, everybody, I believe, will be better off as a result of understanding finances, how to save, how to invest, you know, how to segregate your, your bills and all that kind of stuff. Like mm. these things are of importance for day-to-day -day living and we don't get enough of that in school. Mm. Mm. I remember the question. It was, what was your own personal definition of success? That I would not need to rely on anybody to be able to create my vision of, of, of my life. So um, what that means is if I need to go outside of my comfort zone to go and make something happen, that that is preferable to staying comfortable and nothing happening. So success in a lot of people have said to me, oh, like you must want to be really rich because you've got your own business and you, you, you must want to, you know, be an, a multimillionaire and have all of these streams of income and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, that's not what the success is. I feel successful right now because I'm living the dream that I've had since I was younger, which is as long as I am out there and able to provide for myself and that impact hopefully being positive for others, then that for me is successful. If I'm able to buy things without having to rely on handouts, without having to ask people for anything, that is successful and then whatever else comes on top of that then that's that's the cherry on top that's interesting because i remember a few years ago i lost a major client which i was probably over reliant on and i there was that initial there was the, not panic is not the right word because you know the, the client had been good to me and i and i and i wasn't worried about the money side of things but there was a sense of almost knock back can I could I do this again and I remember sitting down and going I know and I and I went through I picked out 10 random numbers from uh, from LinkedIn of sales directors and I cold called all of them and 
was only 10. Mm. That was it. And at the end of it, I, I just had that feeling of, all's okay. That if you, if you can do that, if you can, you know, it's never comfortable, but if you can pick up the phone and call people, yeah. um, get their attention and have a conversation, you'll never, ever, ever have to worry about where money's going to come from. Mm. Uh, you, you'll never have to worry again. And, and that's what I was looking for, was just that sense of comfort. Don't worry, it's, it's a knockback. You lost a client, but like, you can go out, you can, you can find more. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It was, yeah, it was an interesting one. So I, that, that, that resonates with me, that idea of success is having control over the means to earn. Yes. Yes. Especially in an area where people, and I asked you this earlier, where people don't want to do it or are not comfortable doing it. If you can do that, there will always be a role exactly. for, for, for people who can prospect. So talk to me, Antoine, about the, a, a challenge that you overcome that gave you a major life lesson, something that you would like to impart to others, something about life that you, you realized you know, as, a, as an adult and wish you maybe learned, had learned earlier. Hmm. Whew. Um, probably quite a few. <laughs> um, I, I think the major one that I would walk away with right now is is um, you've got to be aware that there's a constant evolution. Things are constantly changing. And so it's so important to never stand still, even when you feel that you're on top of the mountain, because there is always a way for you to get knocked back down that mountain a very, very long way. And you have to be able to, I think, be willing and ready and able to adapt to your environment and to very quickly understand the nuance of that environment in order to to, to go ahead and succeed um I, I feel like i've i've seen a lot where you know people are unable to either make that jump or make that next step um, and just kind of remain firmly in camp uncomfortable here right now and um, it's too difficult to change or to grow, so I'm not going to do that. I feel that that's a process that you consistently need to be in so that when those major life developments happen and you get shit on from high above, that you're able to quickly, you know, you can lean into that and to how bad those feelings are and how rubbish it is, but then you quickly move on and you're able to then mm. galvanize yourself and then create something again to move your, move out of that phase into the next phase. And um, I think the, the, a really good way of understanding life when, um, I can't remember who it was that I saw this from, it's probably Stephen Bartlett, but um, you know, when, you, you're, when you're looking at your heartbeat, it's, it's, it's up, down, up, down, there'll be little bits and up, down, up, down. Hope, hopefully. <laughs> that, that, that is life, right? That is life. It's, yeah. it's, the ups and downs and ups and downs and it's how you then cope with those downs that then propel you even further upwards the next time around 
it's so true. There's actually a great book. I don't know if you've read it, but I'm throwing it out there for people listening to this to go get it as well. Uh, it's a great book called The Fine Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, right, yeah. Um, and I remember reading it, and there was something that really struck me. And the guy, obviously, you're always better off reading the book because the way the argument is developed and he laid out his conclusion, it's much better in a book. But it was a sense that in life that we, there's always a problem. If you win, if you win 10 million in the, in, in the lotto, for example, or 100 million, now you've just got another problem because there's people who are going to come for you and everybody wants it. Now people want to be your friends who are not there for you. And, 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 and there's all sorts. And now you have to build a security fence around your property. Yeah. Right? It just brings other problems. And, and his conclusion is, is that we, we only get joy and satisfaction in life in overcoming. It's in the climb. Yeah. And, and you have that moment when you get to the top of the hill or the top of the mountain to look around and enjoy it. But then it's kind of, okay, where's the next one? Yes. And his conclusion, which was, which was just, to me, was, would be my top five lessons in life. It would be one of them, which is um, the, the goal in life is to find better problems. It's mm -hmm. not to try and eliminate them. And I think that's a mistake a lot of people in business try to eliminate it. No, it's let's find a better problem, one that's more worthwhile solving. But if you try to live a life without problems, it's just that's that's when boredom kicks in. And Absolutely. yeah, I don't know about you, but when I get bored, I, I cause trouble. I get in, I get into trouble when I when I get bored. <laughs> you know, you want to keep yourself out of trouble, so you create. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm yeah, I've noticed that it's it's what keeps me out of trouble is when my head is in something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And I think, and I think, you know, even when you're looking at the development, like again, so I've been doing sales for however many years, but and then you look at how many people in sales that you've worked with actually take themselves out of their comfort zone and start taking themselves through their own sales training or sales courses and. You know, it was building this business. I was like, okay, I know sales, but how well do I know it? Okay, let me put myself through Sandler training. Let me reach out to people in this space that have done big, huge things, scary things that I haven't yet taken on. And how do I learn and soak up that information so that when at some point I find myself having those challenges or those problems, I've been able to gain at least a little bit of access and a little bit of understanding as to how I can potentially circumnavigate that before it becomes too big. Mm. Um, and I think that you're right. It's, it's, it's not about eliminating problems. Like problems are always going to be there. It's just about the problems that you want to take on that make the most impact or difference to the work that you're doing. And mm. so for, for us um, here, you know, the prospecting problem <laughs> or kind of the sales problem is is a big one. It's never going to be overcome by just us as a, as a, as a company or an agency, but we're hell-bent on getting people there as, as fast and as possible. So, um, again, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I feel like... Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you mentioned something about training there. You Because you, I saw on your LinkedIn profile, you put yourself through training, in, standard training in the UK. I was right. curious to know what you got from that, what it did for you, what changed as a result? Huge, massive, massive difference. I think you, without going through a Sandler or, or some equivalent type of training, then you're really losing out on the understanding of the psychology of sales and you're missing out on understanding 
why people are going to buy from you, how they're going to buy from you, how you position yourself to actually focus on the customer. When you learn sales, you think it's all about you and what you're selling and how I, I need to reach out to these prospects. They need to know everything about me so that they can buy my stuff and be happy. And look, going through a Sandler and realizing actually the EQ that is involved in the sales process is, is absolutely massive. The structure, the process applied to it is absolutely huge. And there's always, you know, people have their process. When you go into businesses, they have their process. But I felt that it was always about, it was very intrinsic. It was never about what's best for a customer or a prospect. And that is what opened my eyes after going through Sandler and being like, wow, you can have a conversation, a, a really interesting, valuable conversation that isn't about me at all. I don't even have to say anything. I just need to ask some really interesting, pointed, not pointed question, but interesting questions mm. that delve into the pain and, and, and the kind of psyche of that person. And wow, you get all of this information that actually means that you can do something positive with it and guide them in the right way, whether it's you're the right service or you're not the right service or your partners have the right service, you're guiding that person in the right way. And it's that positive impact with the customer that I like to focus on. Whether they use us, work with me, or they don't, they can say that they've had a positive experience in being able to get closer to their goal from the conversation they've had with me. Well, that's the commercial out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're paying me um, every month for this stuff. <laughs> Tell me, two quick questions before I let you go. Yeah. Um, the, the desert island question, which I, I, I rarely present as a desert island, is normally your house is on fire, your, your family are safe, your phone and your, your computer obviously are safe, yeah. um, and yet you have time to run back in and grab one thing and rescue it. What would it be and why? Jesus, okay. One thing that I could go back and rescue. Um... I think it would, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to answer the question. I think if I was to grab anything at all, yeah, so it would probably be a, uh, like a book. And so when I say a book, I mean a book with a pen. So I can journal, I can write ideas and I can start to fathom things out. I think I go crazy if I don't have anything to be able to. You do know you could go down to WH Smith and. Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. I have money. If you get one of those, I, it's, it's an amazing service that they have. <laughs> so, I have so I have money. Okay, fine. So if I'm gonna if I'm gonna take one thing with me, it's probably... it's a personal possession, something that means something to you. Personal possession. Okay. So I don't know. No, it's not. I don't know if it's here. I've got this flat Eric. I don't know if you know flat Eric. Do you remember the lead no. by Gene adverts? From uh, from back in the '90s, where it had the little yellow character that used okay. to. Uh, so he goes with me. I've got a mask. He's basically my mascot. Goes with me everywhere. So for, and I see that as a very, it's very, it's like a good luck charm. So if I was flat to take Eric, it would be a flat Eric. Never heard. Now I have to look it up. A flat Eric. I think. There you go. <laughs> That's like an e Elmore or something like that from the Sesame Street. That's Flat Eric from the Levi adverts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm sure you haven't had an answer like that before. So <laughs> I, I, I never have. No, I never have. So thank you for that. It's the most unique one I've had. Um, and final question then is, if there's a book written about your life after your time on this planet is done, what would you like the title of that book to be? Mm, perseverance. Nice. Nice, short, simple, to the point. Love it. Yeah. Anton Marston, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Paul. I agree. Thank you.